May the Lord grant your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Those are verses 4 through 8 of Psalm 20, which along with Psalm 21 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, or Saturday, May the 29th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. We're today, we are in the book of Deuteronomy, the first eight verses of that book, and also in 1 Timothy, as well as the gospel according to Luke. So we finished up the the lessons yesterday on the book of Ruth, which was it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, to be honest with you. There's so much taught in that book in an oblique way, but it, it mostly what it shows is is how to be a person of faith. Ruth becomes a person of faith by, by trusting in the God of Naomi, the ones that they've rejected, she and her family had rejected, and, and because they didn't believe that he could provide, they left the land and went to the land that that she was in, she Ruth, because it was being blessed. And, and while it, at the time, the land of Israel was under drought and famine. And so they leave and go to the land of the Moabites, where there's not drought and famine. In spite of that, Ruth goes back with Naomi to her land once she hears that God's blessing it again. And there she finds great favor. And she becomes grandmother to the to David, who is the 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 true king of Israel, I probably is the best way to say that. And so it, it's, and then it shows Boaz, who's a man of faith, who, who is a man who is committed to the law and who keeps the law in every respect and then exceeds the dictates of the law in order to provide for Ruth and Naomi and then ultimately becomes her redeemer and provides for that family throughout generations to come. And so it's, an, it's a powerful statement of faith and trust in God, and what does it mean to be a person of God in the case of both Ruth and Boaz. And so here we come to Deuteronomy 1, and Moses is now with the people after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They weren't wandering in the strictest sense of the term. They were following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so God was leading them all that way, but they need not have spent all that time in the wilderness had it not been for the sin of sending out the spies to spy out the land and then um, fearing and not trusting God in the same way that Elimelech and the, <clears throat> had done in his day. And so they, they didn't trust God to provide. They, they had fear and refused to go into the land because they were afraid of its inhabitants, in spite of the fact that God had commanded them to enter the land and possess the land. So that meant that if, if God commanded it, then he would provide all that was necessary in order to fulfill the commandment that he had given in the same way that he does in, in Genesis when he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. But he provides the capacity and the ability to keep that commandment. And so here it's the same thing. And so now here we are 40 years later in what should have been about a two-week journey. <clears throat> and now Moses stands before the congregation um, and they've gone through so much during that period of time and here we are beyond the Jordan from the perspective of the land they're on the other side of the Jordan in the land of Moab 
it's where this whole thing is going to begin of of Moses explaining the law all through the book of Deuteronomy and he's going to tell them the instructions for the future of the people how they're to possess the land and how they're to live and to worship once they're in the land and so he begins to explain it the Lord God said to us in Horeb you've stayed long enough at this mountain it's time to go fellas turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabi in the hill country and in the lowland in the Negev and by the seacoast the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river the river Euphrates so he's explaining to them the boundaries of the land and he's saying it's time you've been here long enough at Horeb so now it's time to go and it's time to go and possess the land he says see I've set the land before you go and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham Isaac and Jacob to give them and to their offspring after them so that the plan would have been that they would have gone directly to those places and they would have gone in and possessed the land and we have no idea how that would have been accomplished but they had seen the way that they themselves had been ejected from the land that God went before them the way that that they got their deliverance from Egypt was God going before them and doing everything necessary to get them out of Egypt and then to keep them safe from Pharaoh's army even at the Red Sea to provide for them in the wilderness all the things that we see and God's presence was promised to go with them in the same way that God promises to be with us as we go about the work of the mission that he's given us to do and yet we hang back and we linger and we fail to <clears throat> to speak of him because well we don't want anybody to think we're those people you know those people who are sort of obsessed with this whole idea of religion we should keep that in its proper place which is a secondary position to the true cares of life and and otherwise people will think we're sort of fanatics and so we fail in the work of evangelism because we fail to do the work of evangelism because we fear people's opinions about us. And, and so we don't do the very thing that he said that if we did this thing, his presence would be with us. They'd seen remarkable things in the land. They'd seen remarkable things at the Red Sea. They had seen remarkable provision of God in the wilderness. And then they had seen this awesome and fearsome sight at Mount Horeb. And yet they didn't trust God enough because they had fears that were bigger than and they were trusting in themselves they were looking only to what they were able to accomplish and failing to remember the lessons of Egypt the lessons of the Red Sea and the lessons at the mountain and so in spite of God being with them in a, in a visible way they still failed to do the work that he had given them to do and promised his presence and his power in order to accomplish the thing that he had given them to do. But like I said, we have the same problem. We, we hold back and we're, we're hesitant to go forward and proclaim the gospel, to, to share the good hope that lives within us. We're so hesitant to do that that we're afraid that people will judge us as, well, those, those are those people who are who, who don't keep the proper perspective. They, they're fanatics about this religious thing. So you know who was the greatest fanatic of all time? It was Jesus. He went to the cross in order to save us from our sins. He was fanatical in his love for you, fanatical in his love for me. And, and can we not become those people who are as fanatical about him as he is about us? If we say we love him and yet we fail to do the work that he gave us to do, can we truly claim to be his children Luke in the gospel here records you remember Jesus has just told this parable of the banquet and he's told that 
parable for the guests at the banquet and said, you know, when you get invited to something like this, don't go in and immediately assume an important position at the table. No, leave that alone. Leave that aside and, and, and take a low seat to be humble about yourself. And, and that and but and he's not suggesting that it's some sort of play acting to go and sit somewhere so that the host will come and get you. No, show what you think of yourself with respect to other people by taking the lowest position at the table to truly have a humble heart. And see yourself in that way, and, and then if someone else raises you up, then then so be it. If not, don't worry about it. Be willing to to take that place out of humility, not like I said, as some sort of play acting, so that the host will come and get you and move you up. He says, no, take that seat intentionally. But now he's only spoken to the guests, so he has to look at the man who had invited him. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So look for your reward in heaven. And, and that's the same thing he taught in, um, in Matthew when he's speaking about... Uh, don't you know pray in secret give your alms in secret do all these things in secret and you'll be rewarded by your father who's in heaven because otherwise you're working for a reward in the present day and so he's now telling this man this is to show hospitality not just the people who can repay you by showing you hospitality but show hospitality to those who have no ability to repay that hospitality and, and then you'll be blessed and rewarded by God. So everything you do, let it be so that you might be seeking a heavenly reward rather than an earthly reward. So it's great that you want to provide hospitality, but, but do so um, not with the hope of uh, having that same hospitality extended to you. Do it in order that, that you'll be rewarded by God in heaven. Do it from a pure motive is what he's trying to get at. So which of those who reclined, when one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, it's a great thing that, that, that you've just said, Jesus. That's absolutely wonderful. And then he looks at him and he talks about somebody else giving a great banquet. And so at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now the day would be known, but the time might not be known because the preparations had to extend and, and they're dependent on too many things. And so now he sends out to those who had been invited and these would have been the ones who said, yes, we'll come. And then ultimately though, when the time comes for this banquet, they all make excuses like first says, I've bought a field and I have to go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Well, the problem is, is that, that all of these things were avoidable. None of these, none of these are actually anything more than an excuse. I mean, you bought a field that, and now you have to go examine it? You bought five yoke of oxen and now you have to go examine those things? You didn't do that beforehand? Are you serious? I mean, this is, these are not excuses. Anybody could see through this stuff. I mean, if you had already bought these things, surely you'd examine them and you knew everything about them before you paid the price for them. But no, now you're saying that you bought these things sight unseen and today is the day that you've got to go examine them. And you knew this day was coming and the same with the one who took a wife. I mean, bring the wife. <laughs> you don't have to stay home with the wife and... And do that? No, you you knew this. You knew all of these things, and now you make me look like a buffoon because you think that that 
whatever you've got is more important than coming to me. This is an incredible sign of disrespect from these people. And so the servant, he said, Jesus tells in the parable, the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master became angry and said to his servants, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame. So, so he sends them out first into the city and says, get the people in the city who have, you know, who are looked down upon, who have no other place to go, who will receive this word, this invitation with gladness and compel them to come into this place. The people who are outcasts and the servant says, sir, what you commanded has been done. There's still more room. In other words, the, the kingdom of heaven is an expansive place. Because even after he goes in and gets those who are poor and crippled and blind and lame to come in, there's still room at the table. That's how many people had denied their willingness to come and join in this banquet. And so the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. In other words, he's first sent them into the city, and now he says, go out as far as you have to go into the middle of nowhere and compel those people to come that my house may be full, because he wants a full house for this banquet that he's prepared. And he says, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's a powerful statement of judgment against those who have rejected him and who will reject him. So he's speaking in the present tense to those who have rejected him, who have already decided that he's not the Messiah, that he's an imposter, and he's somebody who has to be dealt with. Those people are in the present tense excluding themselves from the banquet, and then will come others later who are also unwilling to attend the banquet because we've got 50 million excuses for why we can't be about this. Well, I'm busy with this. I'm busy with that. I can't do that right now and and, you know hey I've been guilty of that when I first was called I was 18 years old and I knew that God had called me into ministry and and I had other things that I wanted to do I wanted to make some money I wanted to you know do all these things and then later the hope would be maybe that that I would come into this and then when I was actually called again later the same thing was true I need to make a little bit more money in order that I might come to seminary and not have to experience any difficulty or hardship it would be you know kind of a walk in the park because we it would be more like a retirement sort of period of time and so I put it off and then I got put off for five years and those were the worst five years that I think I've ever experienced in my life because I I didn't know what to do and I didn't know if that call was ever going to be there again and I'm fortunate that ultimately he did call me to himself and call me and allow me to go to seminary and then serve in the church. So I'm blessed to have received grace and mercy when I was that guy that he's describing here in this very parable. In the epistle in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 21, Paul is trying to, this This is the simplest way statement of the Christian faith and the, the call that's on all of us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. In other words, he's just saying something really simple. He's not saying deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus necessarily. He's saying that, but he's saying that 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 should also be done with contentment, not resentment. And so he's calling for godliness with contentment, which is great gain. I have conversations with people sometimes who who are just angry about people who get in the kingdom who make a profession of faith at the end of their lives, having lived an ungodly life for much of their lives. Well, here's the bottom line. That, that, that's, that's flying in the face of this very thing Paul's saying, because what it says is, is that you resent 
them, quote, having fun all their lives. Well, you're not embracing this life. You don't have contentment in your life. You have resentment in your life. And, and you don't see that as you're the way that God calls us to as the best or the, even the better way. And so there's a contentment we have to have in our lot. We have to say that our boundaries fall in pleasant places, no matter where our boundaries fall. And he says, if, if you have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. We tend to compare ourselves up the scale rather than down the scale, right? We don't compare ourselves with the people living in the streets. We compare ourselves with people living on the mountains. And we can s- compare ourselves with those who, who seemingly have everything of the world. And he said, well, the bottom line is you don't take anything out of the world. So be content with what you have. Anything you have is gain. So be content with that. Because he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, this whole thing with Jeffrey Epstein, for instance, you know, with the rich and famous who are out on Epstein Island and all that kind of stuff, and, and, and they're pursuing greater and greater um, pleasure, is I guess the best way that I can say that, in, in all these things. There's no end to the pleasures, and then they have to become perversions of pleasures. And that's what Paul's getting at here is don't be like those who have everything. And so now their pleasures having been met, now they just have perversions that are left. And that was Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes was is that no matter what I had, no matter how many wives I had, no matter how much money I had, no matter how much power I had, no matter how much stuff I had, that was never enough. And I was never satisfied with those things. And so he, he says, look, take, it, take the word of somebody who's had all that stuff. It ain't worth it. It has no meaning at the end of the day because it all goes away. It all passes away at the end of time. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity really means breath, breath. Everything is breath. That's a best translation of that word. It's, it's meaningless stuff because it goes away at the end of the day. And he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and which you made good profession in the presence of many witnesses. And I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he says, he says, Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, and I'm telling you in the presence of God to follow Jesus, who before Pilate made the good confession. Keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just in what you do, Peter, but in Timothy. I mean, it's in what you teach as well. Be careful what you teach others to do. And, and he is speaking of, again, pointing to um, he who is the on, blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in an approachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Don't follow the desires of your eyes. Follow the desire of your heart, which is about those things that are unseen. And then he says, hey, if you know anybody there who's rich today, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. What he's saying is there's nothing wrong with riches so long as you use them for the kingdom of God and that you are not owned then by those things. 
that your heart's unstained by them, that you can hold those things with an open hand, not a closed fist. And then finally, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, the faith, the teaching. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, and that's gnosis. And those are the Gnostics who are bringing something, quote, new to the table, the knowledge that they've gained from the spirit, which he says is no real spirit at all. It's, it's an evil spirit, demonic. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So, so keep it simple, stupid. Is exactly what the message here is. Be humble about who you are. Hold fast to that which is eternal. The message of, of God. Hold fast to Jesus Christ who alone knows about immortality. The one who was raised from the dead. The one who will get us into the kingdom of God by our profession of faith in him. Is our profession of faith in Jesus or is it in something else? What is it we trust in this day?